0: Hello friends and welcome to the Coffee and Deer Show. I'm your host Nick Pinizzato here with the doctor Mike Groman, co-host of the show and we are excited to bring you another great show here today because we're going to be talking about a state record. Uh, We have a state record holder here, state record Texas mule deer. Now don't You know, you're most of the people listening to this, we assume are whitetail people, but don't go switch into a different show because you heard mule deer. This is a good story. And the National Deer Association, we're about all deer now. We're not just whitetail, even though obviously that's a lot of our focus. Uh, But this is a good story. Greg is a, a really great guy. He's a board member of the National Deer Association. So we have some credibility on our board, some chops when it comes to the hunting. And uh, he's going to tell us about his state record, Texas mule deer, a little bit later here in the show. As we get rolling, though, I want to talk about our sponsor for the show today. And the sponsor is the Ferminator. Now, if you've been following the NDA social media waves, participating in our uh, numerous sweepstakes and uh, raffles and whatnot, you may have put in a chance on a Furminator. And the Ferminator is the all-in-one food plot implement where you can do your disking, you can do your call to packing, you can do your planting, and you can get this thing in a variety of sizes. I personally am an owner of the ATV size model. So if you have a a side-by-side or an ATV, uh, they want you to have a a 900 or bigger. You can pull this thing right behind you, and it'll do everything you need. And I can just tell you from uh, just this these past couple of weeks, preparing food plots in some of these places where it was, I was literally, this is a brand new property. So I literally was starting with, with sod, uh, this firminator, this pool behind, this is a, this is a real machine, by the way, easily tore through the sod and created a beautiful seed bed for me. It's all prepped. I just need to go out and seed it now. And that's just the ATV model. You can get a couple larger models as well for your tractor. And again, they do it all. And I just a couple of weeks ago had an opportunity to be uh, in Georgia where they build the Ferminator at Renews Outdoor Equipment. And it was just an awesome process to see. And they're great people. They're great supporters of the NDA. They give us a couple of these things a year to, to raffle off. And they've been great fundraisers for us. And uh, I was actually on a property today. Uh, we'll talk about in a second visiting with a landowner that has one of the tractor models and he just raved about the Ferminator. So you got food plots you want to put in you got uh, especially you've got some small plots like I do the ATV model is excellent. you got a little bit bigger area to work with. You can go with those bigger tractor models but uh, well worth the money folks it's a great piece of equipment and again supporters of the NDA and you can just go to the and learn all about them right there. So they're our sponsor today, much appreciated. Mike, I have teased a couple of times on this show that we should bring somebody in to talk about arrows. And because this is something that uh, since you showed me some of the stuff you were doing last year and it got me into tinkering around and, and trying to get the right setup for me. And lo and behold, this morning, I go ahead and load up the latest Meat Eater podcast, which comes out every Monday. And on the show, they have Dr. Ed Ashley. Nobody on earth has done as much analysis of, of arrows and broadhead penetration and on, on real animals, by the way. And he has the Ashby Hunting Foundation. Basically, what I'm saying here is that uh, the Meat Eater crew stole our idea. And so, and they didn't give us any credit for it.
1: How do you feel about that? I feel that as being the new kid on the block, that that's, I guess, going to have to be all right when you're, um, it's, I guess, just like a newspaper reporter. When we got out scooped, you know, someone came in and took our story and went to press and getting all the glory. But I guess that means that we have good ideas. So what sits between our ears is, I think valuable. And if we can just be a little bit more proactive, I think we'll be set. Well, we have lots of ideas. Most of them don't work. Um, and so, so yeah, obviously,
0: did. yeah, that one, that one counts. I'm going to take that as like a,
1: like a half tally mark. Sorry. Yeah. There's
0: no way they thought about this themselves. I mean, let's just be <laughs> honest about it, but no, Hey, we have, we have no problem plugging our friends at meat eater. They're partners of ours. Uh, First light, yeah, camo, huge partner, part of the meat eater, uh, family accompanies there. And, uh, I, there's no reason for us to do this show now because they couldn't have had a better guest and it's a great show. So I would encourage people to go and listen to the latest meat eater podcast. Oh, by the way, they donated the back 40 property to us too. that nice little donation. So, um, uh, you got to check out that podcast and, uh, it's going to, I think it's going to make you really think about if you're an archer, your arrow setup. up, I know gun guys, the archery guys, gun guys, both, they like tinkering with stuff, right? We, we like to tinker with things, whether it's a load, a certain shell or caliber or arrows. Uh, but if you're kind of a techie person and you really want to know what's going to work best when it comes to taking deer in particular, I think this is a must listen to. And just as a teaser, uh, Dr. Ashby says that he, he doesn't even consider shooting an arrow that's not at least uh, above 600 grains. So most people listen to this are probably shooting arrows about half that
1: weight. So what do you think about that? Well, I will have to say there's a couple things that I wanted to relay because I did listen to that podcast as well. And that's, first of all, be ready to set aside about two and a half hours or parse it out in small little chunks because it's a long podcast make sure that you are mentally ready for it. Uh, if you're, you know, distracted in the gym, trying to listen to it with people talking to you, this is a sit down and concentrate podcast from, from the meat eater, I will say. But what I will say is that I think this is a very timely podcast. It's very informative. And I know that we have our own. We're sitting here pitching somebody else's, but at the end of the day, it's about doing right by the animals that we pursue. And, one of the things that has occurred is there has been a trend in the archery industry and, and the pendulum I think now is finally swinging back. It used to be light arrows, fast, flat shooting trajectories. And we're going back to what it was back in the, well, from you know the early 30s, 40s and 50s and otherwise up to I'd say maybe the mid 80s when we were shooting those heavy aluminum arrows at 2317s, 2219s. And we were getting good arrow flight because we had these heavier arrows. And then all of a sudden carbon came out and it was light and small diameter and mechanical broadheads to get them to fly better. And if you listen to, to the story of how he tells the process and how it works its way out, you'll understand why all of a sudden you couldn't shoot those big broadheads on carbon arrows initially when they became a thing in the early 90s, late 80s. And that pendulum swinging back now, going to heavier arrows, you can go back and and shoot and tune these really heavy broadheads and have great penetration and good end terminal results on game, which is what the real purpose is. They definitely get into some techie stuff on this show, but
0: uh, they do a really good job of giving you the take home of what what you really should know. Right. And as Dr. Ashby mentioned several times, a lot of uh, this idea for speed, the need for speed was all mostly marketing. It wasn't on based on results. And I think that's what makes this show so good. I, he also talks a lot about the importance of having a quality broadhead. He talks about the importance of uh, front of center, you know, having weight forward arrows and what that ratio needs to be.
1: How to sharpen. That's, that was key.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's little things that I never would have thought of. And I think how he went about collecting all this data you'll find interesting to the point where they even have a foundation, and they accept no money from the archery industry. They don't accept money from broadhead companies or arrow companies, and so it's really credible. And you know, I, I thought Mike, I went up to this year. My setup's going to be about a 475 grain arrow, and it's it's shooting outstanding so far. Uh, I thought that was a huge leap to get to 475, and he's talking about 600. I don't think I'm quite ready to go heavier than where I'm at right now, because I do think there's also the importance of trajectory and, uh, you know, the way you might have to compensate for a much heavier arrow. So anyway, I think I'm good with 475 for this year, but I will tell you that this episode made me think an awful lot about
1: it. Yeah. Everything's relative. It's, it's all in the game that you're pursuing. I, he does talk a lot about African game or heavy boned, and heavily armored pigs in texas but then again you know the white tail do you need that much overkill he would argue why not because if you can get to fly well why not but um, that's it's an individualized choice and it's something that you have to be comfortable with and if you can get an arrow to fly well and harvest humanely at the end of the day that's really really what it's all about
0: it is a longer show, and as you said, it's nice if you have some time set aside. I had four hours of driving today. Uh, I went two hours north of here. I met with Kip Adams from the NDA team and Lauren Varner from the NDA team on a property uh, not too far from Lake Erie. Has some swamp land on it. He's managing for deer, ducks, and uh, was managing for grouse, but there aren't any now. He thinks primarily because of the West Nile. But anyway, it was, it was good to see the team and be up there, and that's where the folks had the Ferminator that they were bragging up. And so uh, that was a good day today to get out and do that, but it certainly allowed me the time to, to bring in the podcast. Speaking of the NDA, I want to introduce uh, what I think can become a standing segment here, Mike. And that is, well, let's just call it for now until I come up with something more creative. Uh, we will call it the Ask NDA Anything segment. And so if you're listening to this, folks, how it works is you simply send in your questions and you can send them right to me, Nick at DeerAssociation.com.
1: And if we choose your question. Did you change term, your email address? Uh, no, it's always been that. Okay. Oh, I was also your Instagram handle. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. My fault. Go ahead. This is why we're the B team. We're a little rusty. My fault.
0: <laughs> no, it's Nick at DeerAssociation.com. And send me your question. And if we choose your question to highlight, we're going to give you a prize. Now, I don't know what that prize is going to be yet. It could be, uh, you know, like a brand new pickup truck in your driveway. It'll more likely be something along the lines of a, a cap, an NDA cap, or an NDA uh, die cast sticker to go on your vehicle. Uh, It'll be one of those three things, probably. And so uh, the point is, ask us your questions. Emphasis on the latter two. Yeah. I mean, you never know. If we really like you, you might get the truck. But uh, anyway, send us your questions because you have, obviously, my role as CEO of the organization, at least I should know what the heck's going on. So if there's some things behind the scenes you want to know about, uh, or if you have a habitat question, if you have a deer question. Send it my way. I might not even have the answer, but we certainly have the experts that can answer them. And I think we'll just uh, make that a regular segment of the show. We might even do more than one question. But I've heard other shows do this. I like it, and we want to give away a prize. So, from this point forward, ask NDA anything, and you could win a prize to so participate in that. And also, uh, I, I interject failed.
1: just for a second.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: You're the you're the co so- you're the doctor. Interject. I just would like to add that you, you don't have to be an, a member of NDA to submit a question. This could be any listener can submit a question, NDA member or otherwise. Well, now that you bring that up, though, if you're not a member,
0: you're definitely not getting the truck.
1: Well, I'm just saying, I, I said the latter of the two, but
0: yeah, the latter I, of the three. You're going to submit a question, and I got to tell you, it, it's funny because we have people all the time <laughs> that they may be complaining about something, and then we look them up and they're not even a member. And to be honest with you, folks, we don't listen to complaints as well if you're not a member. (laughs) So um, we're going to look you up. It's better to be a member. You'll get a better prize that way, Uh, But or at the very least, we're going to try to peer pressure you into into getting a membership. And speaking of membership, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I forgot to mention this on the last episode, and I was reminded of that when I was listening to uh, my good buddy and NDA teammate Brian Grossman's show your season 365 last week. Uh, First of all, it reminded me of how good of a host he really is as compared to me. And then the second thing is uh, he remembers stuff. And so I remembered this time because of that to remind you, we still have a membership, special membership offer, $5 off a membership if you enter the promo code podcast. So uh, instead of 35 bucks for the standard, you can get it for 30. To so do that if you're not already a member. It, it matters, makes a big difference to us, and we would appreciate it. Mike, we had a great conversation. It's not every day that you get an opportunity to talk with somebody or know somebody that shot a state record animal. But we, we had that opportunity with Greg. It was a, a great conversation. I'm ex- excited to share it here with our listeners uh, for a lot of reasons. One, I love these stories, these, these stories of big deer that they last more than a year, right? It's not, we got into this a little bit with Josh Honeycutt. It's fun to hear the ones where the people had no idea the deer was there, but it's also fun to hear the ones that are like these long journeys, two, three years before somebody connects. And that's what Greg gives us this time.
1: And especially when there was a lot of hard work and good decisions put into it, to allow them to reap the reward at the end of the day. And I mean, not that a reward has to be a state record, but darn it, I'm sure it has to be a lot sweeter when it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, I brag about Greg all the time. Like, Hey, you know, we have board members that have state record deer. (laughs) So not too many other people can claim that, but we're going to talk about, he's Greg talks about the management and how that played a big role. And a lot of people listening here, I'm assuming are interested in management. Uh, property management and also uh, Texas. For a lot of people, it seems like this far away exotic place where where hunting is just different. And and Greg talks about some of that. So I think people will find this interesting. Uh, And he also has a book that he's wrapping up what we're going to talk about. So uh, let's go ahead and break Greg into the show and, and hear the story right from him. want to welcome to the Coffee and Deer Show my friend and board member of the National Deer Association, Mr. Greg Simons. Greg, thank you for being on the show today.
2: Uh, Thank you, Nick. It's uh, always a pleasure to visit with you and visit with you about uh, some things that uh, are passionate to both of us. So I appreciate the opportunity to participate.
0: Well, Greg, you and I actually, times flying here. I think we met for the first time about six years ago, as I was thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And it's when we were starting the National Deer Alliance, um, which no longer exists. We didn't, we had no idea at the time uh, that it wouldn't exist and we'd create the National Deer Association, but you had helped us with our very first strategic plan uh, that was in uh, Minneapolis. Uh, and so, yeah, we're actually developing a bit of a history now, and you have migrated over from the old NDA board to the new NDA board, and so, uh, we've, we've suddenly been on a bit of a journey here together.
2: Yes, we have, um, uh, still have some, some clear memories of the meeting up in Minneapolis, including, uh, the first time I ever ate walleye was up there in Minneapolis, so, and I've craved it ever since, but, uh, but no, it's really been an honor to, uh, to serve on the previous uh, NDA board and now our, our merged board and, uh, and to be able to contribute any way that I can. So,
0: so Greg, you're also the, the general manager and principal of Wildlife Systems, Inc. And I want you to tell us about that, but I want you to tell us just about you. And so instead of me talking about you, you, you talk about you. Who is Greg Simons, Wildlife Systems, Inc.? Uh, and why do you care so much about all of this stuff that we do?
2: You bet. No, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I grew up uh, like a lot of other young men with uh, an interest in the outdoors, hunting and fishing. And, and uh was very fortunate to, to have a high school principal, uh, Mr. Fleener, that encouraged me to, to go on and get a degree in the natural resource field, which I did at Texas A&M University. Uh, graduated with a wildlife and fishery sciences degree there in 1987. And while I was in college, I had an opportunity to work on some internships. And in uh, two of those internships, was with an individual, wildlife biologist, who was just getting started in a private business, starting his own private business. So it allowed me to get some experience, kind of at the ground level, on seeing how, you know, how a person goes about uh, starting a business and trying to get a business fledged. And uh, so my senior year in college, I um, crafted a, uh, a business plan on paper and presented it to a few individuals to provide some funding and startup capital to to get Wildlife Systems started. And that's uh, you know kind of the short story of um, of how Wildlife Systems was was formed. Uh, the basic uh, logo, uh, the antlered. W that you see on the logo of Wildlife Systems was sketched out with a uh, pencil on paper and an organic chemistry lab my senior year in college. So, but, uh, but yeah, the, uh, the mission, the fundamental focus of Wildlife Systems remains quite similar as it did during the early days. We basically provide different uh, services to landowners, bank trust groups, and some others developing commercial hunting programs on private properties. Uh, Some years ago, when Ruben Cantu, who was the regional director for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, when he retired from the department about seven years ago, we took some of the consulting work that I was doing through wildlife systems, and some of the private work that he immediately started doing when he retired from the department, and we rolled <clears throat> both of those efforts into a, an LLC that we call Wildlife Consultants. And Wildlife Consultants focuses more on providing uh, tech guidance for landowners, bank trust groups, hunting clubs in the Southeast, uh, some expert witness stuff. And um, Reuben spends a bit more time with consultants than I do. Um, and then there's yet one other business that, uh, Uh, Terry Anderson, who also comes from a natural resource background that we started a few years ago called Conservation Equity Partners. And Terry runs that business. And it's it's primarily involved with uh, environmental mitigation, forestry management in the southeast and then putting together uh, basically venture capital to invest in the purchase of different uh, lands that have a good uh, uplifts uplift potential uh, for conservation work and uh, so that's kind of the kind of the trio of businesses that I'm involved with these days and, and very fortunate to, for my avocation and vocation to kind of be one and the same
0: yeah I can tell you that we're just happy to get the little bit of your time that we do because I know you're very busy uh, just going looking at all the different, on the hunting side of things, just all the different hunts that, that you offer, all the different ranches that are part of that. Uh, it's quite an enterprise. And so I'm as, I'm sort of sitting here listening to you talk and asking myself, you know, geez, Greg, did you ever really think it was going to turn into what it's turned into whenever you were scratching out that business plan? <laughs>
2: no, I really didn't. Um, you know, obviously like so many other young uh, entrepreneurs, I had uh, hopes that someday the business would be successful. And, and, but yeah, if if you really had to, to sketch it out on paper, the different pathways that, that some of our business activities have taken and some of the opportunities that have been presented to us and just the, the tremendous land base that we're privileged to work with, uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's almost surreal, even, even to me. And, and, um, and I, for sure, and what we try to instill with our support team is for us not to take that for granted, for granted, the, you know, the privilege that it is to, to work with these uh, amazing properties that we're involved with and to be able to share um, some of the recreational opportunities that we offer on those properties to, to different clients from around the country.
1: So Greg, listening listening to you tell your story, it sounds like you've really come a long way from your start back at Texas A&M. But was that road smooth sailing or was there some bumps in it? And, and go ahead and talk about either whether it was smooth sailing for you or if there were bumps and which ones tended to yeah. knock the rust off the most.
2: Sure, you bet. No, it uh, definitely was not all smooth sailing. Uh, Plenty of uh, bumps along the way, um, you know. Initially, working off of uh, a very limited amount of capital, and um, in learning the importance of, of uh, leveraging capital and leveraging cash flow without creating too much risk. Step, you know, putting your neck out too far. Um, but nonetheless, uh, those first few years, just the um, the idea that we were reinvesting uh, everything back into the business, just to kind of keep the business afloat and to try to to grow the business, was was difficult. I mean, it was very very lean. Um, I got married shortly after I started the business, a uh, lady that I'm still married to today, who's cooking dinner right now, and. Uh, You know we made some uh, some big sacrifices early on uh, in terms of our lifestyle and uh, so yeah just learning how to um, to to again leverage limited cash and limited cash flow and realizing the importance of what cash flow really means to the health of, of any organization it's one thing to have a chunk of cash to work with but you can play through a fixed amount of cash pretty quick and uh and people often talk about how cash is king but really cash flow is king and uh but understanding some of those basic very basic uh financial uh principles early on and then uh you know in learning that uh in the business life uh nothing is is guaranteed and uh you uh, you advance in some areas and you feel like uh, that advancement is kind of uh, a platform that you can use as a springboard. And the next thing you know, you look back and, 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 and you've had a deficit and, uh, and you go back a bit. And, uh, and just the, uh, the ability of not getting too frustrated early on when you feel like you're finally starting to Uh, get your feet underneath you, uh, and then you you have a setback. Um, And and I think most uh, people that start off as a small business owner experience those kinds of, uh, you know, those kind of challenges at at times. Um, And then, um, you know, uh, sometimes life's just not very fair. And in the business world, everybody's not fair. And you sometimes occasionally deal with people that that may not have been um, as, uh, as considerate and as fair uh, in a business deal as what you would have hoped that they'd be. So, again, learning how to cope with some of that and not let it mire you to the extent that um, it's, a, it's too big of a distraction. Those are just a few kind of mile-high type challenges that I would say uh, I faced early on.
0: You know, it's interesting, Greg, as you were talking about life, sometimes isn't fair ups and downs, wasn't always easy. It, it kind of sounds like a lot of deer stories, a lot of hunting stories that you think of, right? Very similar, a lot of parallels. And uh, we could have a series of podcasts about all your credentials and the things you've done for sure. But uh, we want to talk about we want to have it here a good old fashioned hunting story. And, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of hunting stories over the years, but uh, less than 1% of those have to uh, result in a state record uh, being taken. And so uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about your hunt here and uh, and your state record. I I don't, for what it's worth, I don't think I even have the record on my block. So I can't imagine what it's like having a record uh, in a state the size of Texas. So I'm going to step out of the way here and let you set the stage and you're going to tell us about a mule deer that you named Hank. So set the stage. Take us through it. And I know you've told this story a lot of times, but I mean, if, if I shot this deer, I would be happy to tell it as many times as somebody asked me.
2: Yeah. Well, if I never told you about Hank, I'm fixing to tell you about Hank. How's that? I love it. <laughs> no, actually, I'm very fortunate uh, to be able to to share, you know, a story like this that. Um, that uh, is just such a rare treat. It's, it's, it's still, it's, uh, I try to, I try to make sure I check my, um, you know, my, my realistic mindset occasionally about this deer. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, historically, I've always had a passion with whitetail deer and still do. Um, if you, again, if you look at the logo of our company, it's a, it's a set of whitetail deer antlers. But, uh, but in recent years I've become very uh, passionate about mule deer, and, uh, and since 2012, had have been uh, on a mule deer lease, um, actually a couple of different leases here in Texas, and most recently, from 2013 until now, and going forward, there's me and a few other guys that have been leasing a property out in far west Texas in the Trans-Pecos region. It's in the Chihuahuan Desert. And, um, and we first, when we first became involved with this property, the, the water system was, was, um, was pretty much down across the, the property. So very little water in the desert. Uh, our deer numbers were on the low side. So the first thing that, um, that we did over the first few years was focus on water development, getting the water system back up. Because when you're in a part of the world where you get, eight to 10 inches, maybe 12 inches of rain a year, you know, water is, it's, 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 it's the lifeblood of that whole, you know, ecosystem or ecosystems out there. And, uh, but, uh, so we were able to get, um, get the water system back up over a period of a couple of years, uh, started doing some supplemental feeding during the droughty times, um, did some predator work, uh, lots of, coyotes, bobcats, mountain lions um, out in that part of the world. So a lo- lot of pressures, a lot of things that are working against uh, various species of wildlife out there in that part of the world, but uh, in this case mule deer. But uh, but we immediately over the first several years started seeing a positive increase in our our mule deer numbers out there and uh, had some robust fawn crops and uh, so we saw some immediate growth. The, the, the age structure on our mule deer herd was still a little bit light. So it took us several years before we finally started seeing some maturity on, on, on some of those bucks. And, uh, and over time, we started growing some some nice mule deer, some really good mule deer. But um, there was a deer back, um, it would have been in, let's see, I guess 2000 and. 17, 2017 that i saw towards the end of the of the season that uh was with with a group of does it was during the rut and uh, and he appeared to be a, a three-year-old he was he was obviously uh, a bit on the young side but he was a for a three-year-old quite a tremendous deer and uh, but he was just too young to, to to consider taking and uh that next year we got a uh, a deer on camera, got three pictures of them in two nights and this, this deer looked like a four-year-old and I think it was the deer I'd seen the year before. And um, and for a four-year-old, he was a tremendous deer, probably a 210 to 220 inch build deer and um, had quite a few extra points. And uh, And we decided if we saw that deer that year you know, we were going to put him off limits. At, at four years of age, we felt like he was still just, just too young relative to what we were trying to accomplish with our, our, uh, our goals out there. We never saw him that season, never got any more pictures of him. I assume that he was either passing through or that, you know, perhaps a mountain lion ate him, neighbor shot him, but, uh, but we never saw the deer again and uh, never got any more pictures. And then that next year, in 2018, it was really dry up, in, in, up through September, very dry. We had had less than two inches of rain going into September. And we got quite a few pictures of this deer that year. And um, and he had blown up. Uh, even though it was a droughty year, he had blown up. We felt like he was a 230, maybe a 240-inch mule deer. And, and again, he, he looked like a five-year-old. So he was kind of incrementally taking on the body characteristics that one might expect in terms of trying to age deer on the hoof and um, we would rather not shoot our better deer out there on that lease until they're at least six but we decided he was just so big even if he was just five it's low fence we've got hunting pressure around us again we've got predators so we we decided if we had the opportunity to take the deer that year which would have been 18 um, that, um, let's see, yeah, would have been 19, 20. Yeah, would have been 18, but um, but we'd go ahead and take them if we had the opportunity to, to do so. And uh, we saw them one time, um, didn't have an opportunity for a shot, and that was the only time we saw them that season. And then the year I took the deer, which was two seasons ago in 2019, um we got pictures of him again on camera I started getting it again it was a dry year we didn't hardly get any rain until september so kind of a, a replay from the year before as far as the drought goes and this deer the first few pictures that i that i got of this deer he was at a water trough at night and i really had a tough time recognizing the deer and then when i finally decided it was him i thought "Ah, oh, he's He's just not gonna. He's not gonna do it this year. And by then, I'd I'd nicknamed the deer Hank. And uh, but um, and then over the next three weeks, I I got a few other photos of him, and it, it's it's literally amazing how this deer just in a matter of about three weeks mushroomed and uh, and ended up um, just turning into a magnificent deer, and I was fortunate that season to take the deer, the, the third day of the season, that afternoon. I, I spotted him that morning, I actually had a, a stepladder strapped in the bed of my truck to gain some elevation because he was living out in a big creosote flat, and uh, found him just before he bedded down that morning. Um, decided it was just too risky where he was bedded, it was a little too, too brushy to, to push it, so I thought I'll just come back this afternoon, hope to locate him again and hope he'll feed into an area that is a bit more open. And that's, that's what happened. Uh, the deer started feeding about 45 minutes before it got dark. He fed into a bit more of an open area and uh, got down off the, the ladder and made a blind stalk. ended up bumping the deer. I was fortunate to, that it worked out, ended up shooting the deer at about 55 yards, which is way too close for comfort. And uh, but yeah, he's uh, he ended up being a state record, uh, uh, netted uh, two ninety two and change, grosses over three hundred inches. I think he's the third largest mule deer that's been entered into Boone and Crockett from anywhere since nineteen ninety seven. So yeah, just a a remarkable mule deer.
0: Well, that is about the calmest description I've ever heard of somebody shooting <laughs> a deer almost three hundred inches. <laughs> um Uh, yeah but you've told the story a few times and so i I get that (laughs) there's a couple things i want to unpack that you said here uh and especially since a, a lot of our listeners are probably white tailed hunting hunter dominated it's not that you don't hunt white tails it's just this particular deer was a mule deer and so um you mentioned uh, low fence, and when people hear fence, they probably are like, oh, wait a minute, wait, what kind of hunt was this? But uh, this is explain Texas, right? Like low fence basically means it's deer. They, deer can move anywhere, right? Sure. Yeah, and what you have to understand, Texas is about ninety-six
2: percent privately owned, and all that private land, virtually every piece of it, with hardly any exceptions, has some kind of fence that wraps around those property boundaries. Most of it's what we call low fenced areas which are livestock fences. It may be barbed wire fences. It may be four foot net wire fences if historically it was sheep and goat country. But um, and then you have a lot of properties that over the last 30-40 years were high fenced with a deer proof fence or what some people sometimes call a deer proof fence. And uh, so, yeah, it's um, it's almost just common practice in this part of the world when you start talking about hunting different areas that uh, it, 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 with most hunters down here, the story is often kind of predicated or, or starts off with, you know, uh, I was hunting on a low fence place and uh, it doesn't always start off with I was hunting on a high fence place, not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but Uh, the lines sometimes do get uh, confused and blurred. So those people that are, you know, hunting on low fence places down here typically, you know, mention that uh, when they're talking about uh, properties that they hunt on. And, uh, and yeah, those, uh, those, those livestock fences uh, that are four, four and a half, five foot tall uh, deer go through them or over them. If it's a net wire, you know, like there's, you know, like there's almost nothing there. The game proof fences down here are typically eight to ten feet tall. So
1: So one other thing that I'd like you you to unpack for us was some of the habitat work. Now out in the part of the country where we are, habitat work usually comes along the lines of food plots and clearing trees and opening up the canopy. But in your situation, it seems like in that harsh of an environment, it was dominated by water. Water was your your lowest hole in the bucket, if you will, Mm -hmm. that you had to plug. So go ahead and talk about that a little bit and how it seemed like it took multiple years and and how that process went along.
2: You bet. Yeah. You know, in, uh, in habitat, um, you know, habitat's king when it comes to uh, producing, uh, you know, every species of wildlife that may be, in the discussion at the time, and uh, and, and you are correct. Water, you know, water is is one of the four elements of uh, habitat: food, cover, water, and space. You know, space is often overlooked, but uh, but in a in a environment like that, um, you know, water is 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 often the limiting factor. In our case, in terms of other, you know, habitat. Um, progression that we've seen in terms of the fitness of the habitat um, for many years that property had had a, had a had a cattle grazing program in place which can be very complimentary to deer habitat. In this case it was it was grazed pretty heavy and um, 2011 uh, was a record drought uh, not just here in Texas but various areas of the country uh, unprecedented. Drought-like conditions uh, around the state. Um, in this case, the grazing tenant, who was on this property, he you know he bailed out, basically ran out of forage and uh, for cattle. So, um, and he was a grazing tenant. He wasn't the landowner and pulled off. And um, and when he pulled off, as were many ranches around the state and around other areas of the country this year, that year, you know, it, it was pretty scalped and uh, it was grazed very, very short. And, um, and when countries graze that short, even when you do get rain, it takes it a bit longer to recover. And uh, cause the, anything you're seeing above the ground on many of these plants, is often proportional to what's left underground as far as the, the root system. And when the root system is really short, even when you have those rains, it just takes a bit longer for that root system to reestablish itself. And also when the country's bare, when you finally do get a good rain in, the, in these arid regions, a lot of that water runs off you know, because it doesn't have the grass and the weed cover to serve as a sponge to basically capture it and pull it into the ground. So a lot of it runs off. And again, it's just a, another example of how um, country that's been grazed short often takes longer periods of time to recover. So we haven't had any cattle on that property um, since sometime late in 2011, and over a period of the first several years, you know, that that country, you know, was recovering from that impact, and and in some ways still is recovering, But and getting the water system back up in place where we had good water distribution, and another thing that we've done with a lot of those you know, water troughs and water devices that we have out there as we've gone in and we've piled up boulders and rocks and we put in these um, kind of uh, inverted V-shaped uh, expanded metal ramps to where, you know, the water's not simply available for mule deer, but it's, a, it's, it's available for other types of wildlife too, birds that need a perch if they're gonna water, Kangaroo rats, if they're going to water, you know, that can get in, get out, uh, various kinds of, of um, you know, small mammals, birds, even reptiles that have benefited from that water development. So I think that that's a part of the, of the game management story, a part of the story that involves hunting and how hunting uh, incentivized investing into habitat that not just benefits hunting. It also benefits this whole myriad of other wildlife species and makes the, the whole econo- ecological fitness of that area more healthy.
0: Yeah, that's and, for, a very well rounded uh, conservation perspective there. And I think that's a lot of, uh, lost a lot of times uh, when people think about deer habitat management. It's not just to shoot deer. Uh, it's for the whole host of things. And uh, you're talking about rats, of all things, uh, being able to get water. And so I know that you are not only a conservationist in, in education and training, but also in your heart. And that kind of leads me to the this next question. Uh, it's kind of a two-part question. The first one was, I'm, I'm curious to, to uh, see if having, ta- having taken Hank and being a state record holder, uh, how, it, how it may have changed you or changed your life at all, but then also um, one of the things that stood out to me in the messaging about this deer is you were interviewed by various places and there, if you just google Greg Simon's record mule deer there's all kinds of articles to check out um, you talk a lot about the fact that you, Hank was uh, he was obviously a great deer but he was a meal and so um, just talk about those that aspect has it impacted your life at all changed anything and also the importance of just the big picture
2: yes and I'm i I appreciate you um, asking that question, and indeed, there's. I could. Write, I think I could write a mini book on lessons from from Hank. That my personal lessons. Um, you know, and, and you're correct. I have. You know, regardless of, of that particular deer, in recent years, I've gone grown to appreciate uh, the uh, the food part of hunting. And, and I think that's consistent with just this whole paradigm shift of why people seem to be uh, getting into hunting and staying in hunting these days. Is this this whole foodie movement, uh, what some people refer to as the locavore movement—people uh, that want to want to consume locally grown organic foods and they want to be part of the process of collecting and processing those foods. Um, But uh, but yeah, there's uh, the deer certainly uh, provided some enjoyable meals and I tried to make sure that I captured that uh, by sharing it on Facebook. I have a book that'll be published in the next several months that I have some pictures of the meals that that deer provided uh, to me and my family that are in that book. Um, And, uh, but a a few other kind of interesting lessons you know about that whole experience. As, as you know, Nick, I've been I've been pretty open about expressing some of my concerns of what's going on with some of the captive propagation of cervids around the country and um, some specific concerns that I have. I've been pretty pretty critical, pretty outspoken, and um, and, and and I have no uh, reservations. Uh, um, or second thoughts about that and, uh, but it, what was interesting is once I started sharing some of these photos and some of this information about this this remarkable deer was the amount of social media social media uh, attacks that I received and uh, some people that, just assumed it had to be a captive-raised deer. And I can, in some ways, I can see that. And because the deer was incredibly large, and these days, anytime you see a whitetail deer that is exceptionally big like that, one of the first things that people start thinking about is that deer had to come out of the pen, or it had to come from behind a high fence. So there was a lot of uh, folks that just uh, assumed and, uh, and were very critical about that deer had to be a, a, um, a high fence deer, etc. Uh, some people that were very critical by the idea that I used a stepladder mounted in the back of my truck uh, saying that that was an unfair advantage and uh, um, you know supplemental feeding that we provide during the droughty periods out there, even some of the water, the artificial water work that we've done, I, you know there was just a tremendous amount of antagonistic kind of uh, of uh, comments that that I saw on Facebook. So it did, in some ways, I think it 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 enlightened me in terms of trying to better understand um, you know all you know all sides of debates um, that surround what we do with some of these you know some of these deer, whether it be white-tailed deer or mule deer, but. Um, and it also allowed me to understand how <laughs> I think there's just a, a, a an unfortunate amount of jealousy, animosity, uh, however you want to characterize it, that exists in our hunting community, and uh, and it's some of those, some of that behavior I think is a is a testimony of. Uh, sometimes we are our own worst enemy uh, when we start uh, being critical of things without really even understanding what some of the facts are
0: yeah i uh as you're talking about the stepladder in the in the back of your truck anybody that hunts from a comfy tree stand would you th- rather have your tree stand or a stepladder uh, i was in a stand the other day helping a neighbor look at some things on his property that had literally had you could have slept six in there and it was on this big tower and it had a cook stove in it. So um, I, you know, I, I don't want to hear people complaining about a stepladder, but uh, I, I got to ask you, Greg, so what do you do for an encore? I mean, uh, this this deer is awesome and it's incredible, but uh, I get the sense that, uh, you know, you're pretty well grounded on, on these matters and uh, you're probably just going to keep slugging away and look for the next one, right?
2: And that's been a real common question is, uh, you know, uh, will you have a difficult time getting motivated or excited to continue, you know, mule deer hunting? And, and the answer is, is, yes, I will. And, uh, and, and I fully recognize that there is, this, there is this much chance that I'll ever shoot another game species shoot. Of any species that will come close to approaching the relative stature and size of that deer, it just—it's it, not going to happen. The the enormity of that particular individual animal is so rare, and 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 I recognize that, and I want other people to know that I recognize, you know, how unique and how rare that that animal is. So uh, so yeah. I, I think the first thing is for me to to just go ahead and and and, and understand that I'm not going to shoot another 300-inch mule deer, and uh, but uh, but I'll likely take some other mule deer that will be exceptionally, uh, you know, big mule deer for that part of the world or for any part of the world, and, and I'll look forward to to trying to to produce those and and uh, and, and pursue those kind of kind of deer. But uh, but no, a very common question that. That I get these days.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine hanging it up either. <laughs> I think you just keep no, I'm not
2: hanging it up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh so uh where can people find uh you where, where can they find wildlife systems if they want to if they're interested in booking a hunt or getting you out there to look at their place? Sure. Yeah, it's
2: uh just Google Wildlife Systems, Wildlife Systems.com is our website, and that'll provide um a, uh, a look into uh, who we are and what we do and, and how to contact us that's the that's the easiest thing just google wildlife systems and go to our uh, our website and retrieve our contact information like that
0: and also i was unaware that you had a book coming out so that's great looking forward to that then do you, can you give us a a timeline or where, where will people be able to find that when it's ready <laughs>
2: Sure, you bet. It's going to be a self-published book. It's called The Hunting Business, and it's a book that I actually began working on about 11 years ago when we were in Hawaii on vacation, and I wasn't that crazy about spending you know, six or seven days down on the beach, and, uh, and over the next three summers uh, or the next two summers, um, I worked on the book during my slower time of the year, and then became an officer in Texas Wildlife Association, which is a huge time commitment. And so I basically shelved the work of that book for six years. And um, and over that six-year period, a lot of water passed under the bridge, and I realized that You know, some of the material that I needed to include had changed and even even my writing style had changed a bit. So I started over about three years ago and just finished the manuscript several months ago and then did the self-editing part of the process, which took me another 60 to 80 hours of work on the self-editing part and then recently turned that over to to Lori Woodward of Look Woodward Communications, she's doing the editing part. And uh, but uh, we recently went through a little little competition uh, through 99 designs to help us design the book cover, and we now have the book cover finished. And uh, and hopefully here in the next few months we'll have the the edited manuscript back, and then we'll uh, we'll do the publishing in house. And make it available online and through some other outlets, maybe through, you know, uh, Texas. I'm sorry, not Texas uh, National Deer uh, Association, and uh, so uh, in other groups. But uh, but yeah, I'm excited to to get it wrapped up. And it's it's basically a kind of a deep
0: dive look at the
2: at the hunting business, and uh, so.
0: Uh, I think people will appreciate that inside look for sure. And I know I look forward to seeing that as well. You might be just as relieved whenever you finish that book as you were when you saw Hank laying there. So uh, true labor of love. So with yeah. that, Greg, uh, thank you so much for giving us some of your time here this evening sharing your story about Hank, but also just a, a big conservation story. And I think really that's, that's really the moral of the story here. Uh, you're doing a lot of great conservation work for a lot of species. And uh, a side effect of that is being able to get yourself on a deer like Hank. So thank you again for being with us today.
2: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
0: What a great story, uh, Greg, for someone. Yeah, I mentioned this in the interview. If I shot a state record, Mike, I got to be honest with you. Every time I tell the story, I'm going to be like animated, jumping up and down and excited. And Greg tells the story as if he was like, yeah, I went out and uh, you know, picked a few tomatoes out of the garden today. So uh, he's
1: way more composed than I would be, I have to admit. Well, and everybody is, and I keep saying everybody's different. For some reason, that must be my line today, but everybody's different and everybody expresses themselves in their own unique way. But the fact that we can see him on this um, face-to-face Zoom call versus just listening as, the, as you, the listener, would be, I will have to say that he did have a smile on his face. So it wasn't like... Uh, he was emotionless. He, he definitely you could see it in his eyes. There was a twinkle in his eye. He did have a grin on his face. So there are some, some definite positive memories there.
0: Yeah, it was a great conversation and we appreciate Greg taking the time out to do that. Uh, what, an, what an amazing accomplishment to, if you think about the percentage chance that you will ever take an animal that becomes a state record Uh, let alone a world record. It's just astronomical. And management played a huge role in that. And I think that's a really cool part of
1: the story. If it wasn't for management, he would have never gotten that opportunity. Well, and one thing that I want to make known because he kept gesturing and I, I noticed it during the interview and I wanted to say something, but he was on a roll and I did not want to interrupt him, was when he was talking about the state of the property upon their purchase of it, or their lease, I think it's a lease, uh, when they started to lease it, and he talked about how the cattle had it grazed down. I want the listener to understand that he kept gesturing with his fingers, like his thumb and index finger, and he was only having those two fingers, or his finger and his thumb, if you will, spread no more than two inches apart. That was the habitat, or at least the cover, or the food that they had available Uh, And he kept gesturing that, but he never really said it. And so I wanted to make sure that you understood what he really was, I guess, initially starting off with.
0: Yeah. I mean, they brought the place around a long way. And I've heard multiple or many, many stories, not necessarily with state record deer, but where people turned the property around and had really great results. And uh, Mike, I have breaking news. Okay breaking news. I got a good buck on camera just yesterday. Yes, you did. So I guess it's not really breaking news to you because when that happens, I immediately send it to you and vice versa. (laughs) When you we haven't, I don't know if we've ever exchanged pictures of our kids or anything, but we certainly exchange trail camera pictures the minute they come in. And so this is kind of a funny story, Mike. So we, we've talked about our friends at Moultrie and Moultrie mobile, big sponsors of NDA. I love their cameras. Uh, really simple to use and they're just, they're high quality. And so most of the time, right in the middle of the day, if my phone gives me a notification that I have a picture coming in, I don't even really look at it because it's typically, you know, the sun is hitting a certain way or it's a squirrel or whatever. And so, uh, this deer came by the camera a little after 11, we're actually close to the lunch hour. I don't even think I looked at the picture to almost four in the evening or four in the afternoon. And I was like, whoa, where did this deer come from? Because I I had just done a card pull of a few cameras I had out because I was out doing a few things here the other day. And I was excited. Actually, there's an Instagram post. If you go to my Instagram, NDA Nick P. I posted a picture of this two or three year old deer, nice looking deer. And I've got several kind of in that age class that hopefully will live another year and, and be, be even nicer animals. So I was happy about that, but I was also, I've been a little bit disappointed not to see something that I would be really excited about pursuing this fall. And then this deer showed up. And so he's, uh, I haven't posted any pictures, but he's got a nice sort of palmation on his right side and a kicker point off of there. It looks like a solid 11 point and, and could be a four-year-old at least. So anyway I shared a picture with you and obviously I was a little excited about it
1: as you should be I mean this is your first year on this place and you you've definitely put in the time I'm not gonna you know say and it was it was actually you I will tell everyone out there listening that you know you've you've made me work a lot harder on my piece this year because every time I turn around you're you're out there doing something. I'm like, God, I'm really slack. And I got to double down with what I'm doing this weekend. I got to add an extra couple things to the to-do list before the season kicks in. And now I was driving home because I was up there uh, all week trying to get some evening work done. I had work all day remotely and then work at, you know, around the place in the evening. And on the way home, I decide, I'm like, you know what? I'm usually out of there by the second week in August, no more four wheelers or anything like that. I'm like, I've got to go until the second week of September to keep up with you. So <laughs> I, I like how you're pushing me. I appreciate it because it's going to get me, get me moving a little bit harder and faster. But uh, yeah, yeah. I think you're, I think you're on the right track for sure.
0: Yeah, it was, it was just nice to see. It's nice to know. I I, I am perfectly fine with going a season without filling a buck tag. That, that's, that's not a problem if it happens, but it's nice to know there's some walking around out there that, that uh, I'm interested in. So uh, speaking of management this weekend, Mike, you and I, along with several of the uh, others of the NDA team, will be doing a habitat module on the bearded buck property. It is in Southwestern Pennsylvania. Some of you may be familiar with the bearded buck TV show on sportsman channel. They've been good friends of ours and they are lending us their property and facilities to, put on a habitat module and this is, it's, it's too late for you to sign up now, but keep an eye out for these things in the future. We're going to have Dr. Craig Harper up there, Kip Adams, Matt Ross, uh, people that are just very knowledgeable and great educators. And you're going to get some hands-on habitat improvement opportunities, food plots, uh, you name it and spend a full weekend on some of these great properties. Uh, also, if you've never looked at our deer steward, program, check that out. Just go to our website, deerassociation.com, type in deer steward. You can check those out, uh, go through the deer steward program, check out these habitat modules. Uh, they are a great opportunity. And so Mike, I'm, I'm looking forward. I learned something at every, every one of these things I'm looking forward to spending the week there as I look at the agenda and all
1: the things we're going to learn. Oh, I agree. I'm, I'm really excited of block time so that I can definitely, uh, be there and not have to worry about work or, things at home. But what I'm excited about in all of these modules, as you call them, or even the Dear Stewart program, which I went through as well, it's it's just the knowledge that's being brought together. I mean, in the experience, you know, because like knowledge is one thing, but real world experience is something else. And when you're talking about someone like Dr. Craig Harper, Kip Adams, Matt Ross, there's a lot of years cumulative years of real world in the woods, in the field experience that, that leads to results. So I'm, I'm excited about that.
0: Yeah, they're great opportunities. So check those out folks I believe this is our last one for this year, but we'll certainly have them for next year. Keep your eyes open for those. Like I said, they're great opportunities. And speaking of food plots, I have to say, I was, I was with Kip today. And during part of the conversation, he's talking with the landowner and he mentions that his food plots are planted already. And so I'm feeling rather inadequate, but I will say it gets colder a lot quicker up in his neck of the woods. So I think I'm okay still waiting another week or two before I get seeds in the ground here. But I, I, but I, I was a little taken aback by that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's different for everybody. And he has lived on that piece and managed that piece for a long time. So he knows his routine. Uh, me, on the other hand, and a lot of the people that are in and around my co-op, we're not planting until not this weekend, but next. That's when we usually put in the ground. And that seems to work best in our area. But even though we've had a wet summer, which was very refreshing, to be honest with you, because we're always seeming to fight some late August drought. And well, that runs from July into August, and it's really tough. And there's been years that we've done late plantings, even into September, and just had to commit to you know winter hardy seeds that will just grow just to put something in so it, it's it's going to vary and you have to i guess a good land manager is that you have to assess the situation make an educated decision and and be adaptable without getting too overly frustrated
0: yeah it's
1: again depending on where
0: you live and what what the best time to get seed in the ground is you're going to learn every year varies of course but you're going to learn what's best for your place where you're hunting and By the way, you don't have to, I just want to mention this because I was reminded of this the other day when I was looking at trail camera photos. You don't have to do food plots ever to create food for deer. Um, There are a lot of ways to do it. And one way I was reminded of, Mike, is I had a, uh, a trail camera where I needed to do some trimming of the limb around the camera so I didn't get a thousand pictures of tree limbs blowing. And I let the trimmings right there in front of the camera. And it was, I wasn't out of there an hour. And I have pictures of three deer coming in and they just mowed down those leaves that they previously couldn't reach. It was like instant food plot. And so even within your forest, there are ways to get food down to the deer. You don't have to go buy seed and, you know, have ferminators and do all this other crazy stuff. I think it's, that's more of a hobby. That's not necessarily, um, required for sure in a lot of cases, but at any rate, I was just reminded that uh, there are a lot of ways to naturally get food to deer. And that little series of trail camera pictures, I should probably put a little video
1: together. That really reminded me of that. That's true. I mean, it's, and it's a lot easier and it's a lot less expensive and the results are nearly at times instantaneous as you were talking about. I've done that in several places on my, my place where I've had a, I had a cluster of young silver maple. They weren't really doing anything. I took them out and um, just allowed natural regeneration. And for the past three years now, that's a place that I commonly have deer pictures. Deer interact. You know, deer sign is in there. They're browsing the area, and it's just something that didn't take very much. I think I was in there with my like I have a still ninety rs or something like that where it's it's basically like a two-handled weed whacker with a blade on the bottom went in there and took those silver maple out that opened up the canopy and bingo we have regeneration and deer appreciated it
0: yeah if you're new to this i encourage you to anyone listening go to the deer association website use our search function we just have endless resources for all of these things that we're talking about here and the people that wrote those are much smarter than Mike and I. So uh, I, would, I would definitely check those out and, and take advantage of that there. And so with that, I just want to remind you, if you're not already, please consider subscribing to the show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Stitcher. Or you can just go to dearassociationcom slash podcast. You can subscribe from there. Uh, not just to this show but also to deer season 365 and we also have our program how to hunt deer you can subscribe to that as well please also leave us a rating we've been getting some ratings we appreciate that but we need more uh, give us a rating good ones they don't give us bad ones <laughs> give us good <laughs> ones and that'll help us uh, climb the charts and be visible visible to more listeners Uh, For more information about NDA, please visit our website at DeerAssociation.com, and from there you can become a member, sign up for our free newsletter, and I already mentioned the endless content that we have available to you, so check that all out for sure. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Lindsay Thomas, who we've had on the show and who is the Chief Communications Officer for NDA, told me today that our YouTube numbers are kind of through the roof. So obviously some people are finding good stuff there. Definitely check that out. And finally, we just want to thank you for listening. We enjoy doing the show and we also enjoy hearing from you. Remember, submit your Ask NDA questions and we'll get them on the show. We want to hear from you for sure. So again, thank you for listening. National Deer Association, we are united for deer.